Well, good morning, Southwinds. It's so good to see everybody today. So glad that you are here. Uh, before we get started with our message today, I want to tell you about the new message series that we're going to be kicking off next Sunday. It's called My True Selfie. And uh, we are going to be talking about our identity in Christ. And we live in a time, uh, you've probably noticed, where questions about identity, about who we are, they're like everywhere, and they seem for so many people to be everything. And many people are confused uh, about their identity. I think even many Christ followers wonder sometimes uh, who they are and what it really means uh, to be a follower of Christ. And so we're going to be taking several weeks just to explore what God's Word says uh, about our true identity in Jesus Christ. And I hope that you will make plans to be here every week. I also want to tell you that it's going to be a great opportunity to invite your friends. I think it's going to be a blessing to all of us as we dig into God's Word uh, together. Uh, Today, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. It's chapter 8. You'll want to turn there. And uh, we're going to be looking at a conversation that Jesus has with this fascinating man. Uh, We're going to look at what he said and, most importantly, what Jesus said. We're going to ask how this conversation really should shape our lives today. Because as you're going to see, this man understands obedience like few other people ever have. Uh, We're going to be reading verses 5 through 13. And so let's look there right now. It says, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies paralyzed at home and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, He was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go. It will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Now today, uh, we are going uh, to get to know uh, an amazing man, this Roman centurion. You know, around here at Southwinds, we we like to say that our goal for every one of us is full devotion uh, to Jesus Christ for every single Christ follower. And this man is a man who understood that one of the most fundamental aspects of full devotion is obedience. Obedience. He understood that full devotion to Jesus Christ means we obey Jesus' words without reservation. It is not about how much we know. It is not about how often we agree with Jesus. It's about how we actually obey. I think you're going to see today that this centurion really is one of the more remarkable characters in the New Testament. And so to get to know him, I want you to write down a few characteristics of this remarkable man. The first one is that he is a man of compassion. One day, a slave of his gets sick, and this centurion cannot stand to see him suffer. He just can't stand by and watch him die. And so he goes looking for Jesus. 
Now, as a general rule in the New Testament, people come to Jesus for healing for themselves, lepers for cleansing, blind for sight. Uh, Occasionally, a parent comes for a child, a father has a sick daughter, or there's a son who's demon-possessed. But this Gentile soldier is on a mission for a slave. And Roman centurions, you might not be surprised to hear, were not generally known for soft-heartedness. Their main job requirement really was toughness. One Roman historian wrote, Centurions must be able, when overwhelmed and hard-pressed, to stand fast and die at their posts. How many of you are committed to standing fast and dying at your post? You're going to work this week? That's your promise. Now, a centurion also was a person who had to be ruthless about maintaining discipline. I mean, it was his job to supervise and administer beatings of soldiers. It was his job to exercise capital punishment on his subordinates when needed. How many of you have that in your job description? Exercise capital punishment as needed. Anybody wish they did? I don't know. See, centurions would have been hard men by their nature. But here's a guy with a compassionate heart. Let's picture this scene, this big, rugged soldier, a Roman. He approaches Jesus, a a Jew, and he humbles himself. Lord, he says. And notice Matthew writes down that he says it twice here in the text. It's very striking. Matthew wants us to know that he calls Jesus Lord two times. Lord, my servant, lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. And everyone stops and everyone waits They want to see what is Jesus going to do because they know no self-respecting rabbi will talk to a Gentile. And this isn't isn't any Gentile. This is a pagan-born, Caesar-serving member of the army that has oppressed and occupied Israel, Jesus' people. But Jesus, notice this, he doesn't even wait for the centurion to make the request. He just says, I'll go. But then... The centurion stops him and says, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. And again, this is a, another deeply humble, humble response. And again, you might not be surprised to hear that centurions were not generally known for their humility. I mean, they're the conquerors. They are ruling over a defeated people. But this man is aware that a devout Jew wasn't even supposed to enter a Gentile home. And besides this, beyond this, There's just something about this man, Jesus, that makes him very aware of his own brokenness. He spent a career in the Roman army. He knows violence, bloodshed, hurt. And so he says, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. He's just a remarkable man, this compassionate centurion who cares for his slave. You you also notice that he's a generous man. We We get this from Luke. Luke tells us in a parallel account that this man actually has paid to build the synagogue in Capernaum. And so the Jewish people in that town have a synagogue thanks to his generosity. But none of that is what really amazes Jesus. What marks this encounter are the words that come next. Look at the end of verse 8 and into verse 9 where this centurion says this. He says, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Just say the word, Jesus. That's all you have to do. 
Just say the word. Now notice how Jesus responds, and his response is remarkable. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he was what? He was amazed. He was astonished. I mean, you might think that being omniscient and all, Jesus would have seen this one coming. But though he was fully God, he's also a real man. And as a man, we're told he's astounded, he's astonished, he's amazed. Notice Jesus' next words. I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And so we see this man is also remarkable for his great faith. Now think about this statement. Not anyone in all Israel. I mean, Jesus doesn't say this casually. This is not hyperbole. It's not like someone could have reminded him, hey, Jesus, what about John the Baptist's faith? And Jesus would have said, oh, oh, yeah, forgot about him. It's not like someone could have said, hey, Jesus, what about your disciples? Or Jesus, what about your mom? And have Jesus go, oops, slipped my mind. Oh, well, this guy's right up there. It's not that kind of deal. Not anyone. And that is why Jesus includes, notice this, the phrase, I tell you the truth. This is a phrase that Jesus uses fairly often in his teaching. Some versions will typically translate it truly. The old King James would translate it, verily I say unto you. And it's actually three words in the Greek text. And those three words together indicate this. Jesus is saying when he uses this phrase, don't miss this. Don't miss that I am putting all of my authority behind this statement. It's emphasis. Now, this is also, we can note, the first time that the word for faith, that's the primary word for faith in the New Testament, is used in Matthew's gospel. In other words, Jesus saves it for this centurion. Jesus has chosen his words quite carefully here. He's a remarkable man. Now, when we move through this, what about this centurion's words and actions causes Jesus to say what he does? And there's some things I want you to note here. And the first is, like no one before, this centurion understands who Jesus is. Just say the word. Do we understand this? Do we understand Jesus' great power? This man comes to Jesus and says, heal my servant. And Jesus says, all right, I'll come and heal him. And this man says, you don't have to do that. Now think about how, how does healing usually work? I mean, usually the person who is healing needs to be on site, right? Needs to be there. If it's a doctor, they'll be there to use medicine. Anthropologists say in some cultures, uh, faith healers will use touch, or maybe there's a charismatic personality, or they employ the power of suggestion to tap into the healing aspects of a hopeful attitude. But, but the healing person needs to be present. The centurion, though, here says, you don't need to come. The centurion, here's what I want you to see. Do not miss. He is now making a statement about the fundamental nature of reality in the universe. This is so important. We, we live in a culture today that largely holds to a secular worldview. And what that means, among other things, is that most people see reality as fundamentally physical, a fundamentally material. It's, in other words, not spiritual. Most people today think that the laws that scientists have discovered are ultimate. 
And maybe even some of us tend to think that way, tend to assume that physical forces are the ultimate forces in the universe, that the universe actually really runs according to the laws of gravity and thermodynamics, these, these laws that, that govern material things. We've just been conditioned to think like that, but I'm here to tell you today that is not true. Jesus knew that the universe is governed by the word of God. You know, when God wanted to create the universe, when God wanted to create light, what did he do? Well, God spoke. God said, let there be light. He just said the word. And what happened? There was light. It was so. All God has to do is just say the word. Let the dry ground appear, and it did. Let there be living creatures, and there were. God speaks, and it is so. You see, according to Jesus, the fundamental power of the universe is the very word of God, the expression of God's intent. And I don't know if you've thought about this, but that's what a word is. A word is just the expression of the thought or intent of a person. You know, when we say God's word, we usually are talking about the Bible, you know, what we have recorded here. And this is true. This is God's word. But when that phrase is used in the Bible, usually it refers to the fact that God has expressed his thought, that God has spoken his desire, and it will always be fulfilled. That's why God says in Isaiah 55, 11, my word will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. See, when God speaks, it's so. And now this man, Jesus, he comes along. One day he's in a boat, and one day there's a storm, and his friends are terrified, and he wants to stop the storm. What does he do? He just says the word. Peace, be still, and it's still. One day, Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. He's been in the tomb for three days. Jesus wants to raise him up. What does he do? He just says the word. Lazarus, come forth. And he does. Just say the word. A leper comes to Jesus one day and says, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus do? He says, I'm willing, be clean. And he is clean. He just says the word. And what you need to see is what God does, Jesus does. He speaks, and it is so. And this is a staggering thing. This is what governs the universe. And who's the first person to get it? I mean, this is so ironic. The first person to understand what is going on here, not the scribes or the Pharisees, not some rabbi, not someone who's been to seminary, not the disciples, you know, the guys who hang out with Jesus every day, listening to him teach, watching him perform his miracles. The first guy to get it is a pagan Gentile, an uneducated, unsophisticated soldier. He gets it. And Jesus kind of likes that. Jesus says... This guy has set a new standard for faith. It's like a new Olympic record. Finally, somebody gets it. Somebody understands. I think it's hard to imagine what Jesus' words did for that centurion. He was just a kind of blue-collar guy, you know, doesn't have a master of divinity degree. 
He doesn't even have a pretty darn good divinity degree. And yet Jesus says his faith is astonishing. I mean, how would you like to astonish Jesus? How would you like to have the kind of faith that Jesus would call amazing? And you must understand this. What is going on here? In coming to Jesus, in submitting his request... This centurion is not simply acknowledging an abstract theological belief or position. He now is taking his place in God's kingdom. It's so easy to read the words and just kind of pass over them like nothing is happening. But this is what's happening here. The centurion is saying, Lord, the obedience that the universe offers you as a matter of course every day, I now offer you as the act of a surrendered heart. I would be unspeakably honored if in addition to all creation, you would include in your kingdom one unworthy centurion as well. From this day forth, I submit myself to your rule, to your reign. I know how authority works, and I am placing myself under yours. See, this rugged centurion says, just say the word. And Jesus says, this is great faith. This is so important. Do not miss this. We are being told what it means to trust in Jesus here. See, it's Very often, so in our day, in churches like ours, when people ask, have you put your faith in Jesus or have you trusted Christ, what they really mean is something like, do you believe Jesus has made an arrangement to get you into heaven? Jesus actually never uses the word faith in this way. In the New Testament, to trust Jesus fundamentally means to believe that he is right. You say, right about what? Well, right about everything. He's just right about everything he says. You see, above all else, this faith or trust means we submit ourselves to his authority. Just say the word. You see, a disciple is actually someone whose chief priority in life, hear me, I don't want you to miss this, is to actually do the things that Jesus teaches. Not just listen to those things. Not just nod your head in agreement with those things, but actually to do what Jesus says. This is a very consistent theme in Jesus' teaching. We see it in a number of places. Here's some examples. Mark 3.35 says, whoever does God's will, this is Jesus speaking, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. In Luke 6.46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You see, obedience is at the heart of what it means to know Jesus and follow Jesus and trust Jesus. Obedience is also very crucial to growing in our faith, to developing deeper faith. In fact, I would say to you, if you have some doubts, most of us do, and if you would like your trust to grow deeper and stronger, Jesus has a word for you as well. It's in John 717, Jesus says, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God. You struggle with doubts? One of the keys to growing in faith is not what so many people think it is, just getting your head crammed full of information. 
the key to growing in faith is actually trying doing what Jesus says. And when you do that, it's amazing how often then you find out that he is right, and then you find out that he's worthy of your trust, and your faith grows. In fact, we might actually call that the great Jesus experiment. Jesus says to everyone, trust me, become my apprentice, become my follower, follow my teaching, and when you do, you will find out that it's all true, everything that I have said, but you must do what I say. So I'm asking you today, this is where this has all been headed, I'm asking you today, are you doing this? Are are you seeking to live out this great experiment with your life? Have you made your life purpose this? Lord Jesus, I will consciously lay aside my sinful tendencies, my sinful desires, and instead I will do what you say. I will submit my will to yours. I will place myself under your authority. Jesus, just say the word. Have you made that choice? Are you living out of that choice on a consistent basis? I just want to tell you, uh, you will have many opportunities to practice this actually every day because all of us, every one of us, we have lots of times when our natural inclinations are going to run counter to Jesus' teachings. Have you noticed that? There was a writer named George MacDonald who once asked a penetrating question. You might want to write it down and think about it. He said this, what have you done this day because it was the will of Christ? And what he was getting at is this. If we happen to do his will because it falls within our plans, that's a good thing. But it's not fundamentally obedience. Obedience comes when as a conscious act, we lay aside the appetite. We lay aside the desire, the the inclination of our sinful, fallen flesh. And instead, we do what he tells us. Just say the word. It's subduing our will, mastering it, bringing it into submission. We, We say to Jesus, just say the word. And with that in mind, I would like to ask you, every one of you, even if you haven't been taking notes so far, to pull that outline out that you got in your program and look at it. I want to do, with the rest of our time, a little inventory. We're going to get real practical here. A little inventory of how the Jesus experiment is going in your life. I want us to do a little test. Are you actually doing what Jesus says, seeking to do that? So to To get into that, I'm going to review just a few of Jesus' teachings and just ask you as we go through them to reflect sincerely, uh, personally, privately, am I actually doing these things? Is it my sincere intention, really, I mean, above all else, to seek to do these things that Jesus says? And this is such an important thing. This matters for every one of us. All of us have spheres of influence places where we lead and touch other people's lives. And if we are not doing the things that Jesus says, if we are not living out of obedience, it impacts everyone around us. So here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to summarize a command of Jesus with a phrase. We'll look at several of those. And then on the right side of that, you can write one of three words. Yes. Uh, If you would say, I generally do what Jesus teaches. I may not be perfect here, but I'm consistently trying. Or second, you can write sometimes. Kind of a hit and miss deal for you. Good days I do, bad days I don't. Or third, 
you can write no. This is when you would say, truth is, I don't really do this. Maybe occasionally, but this is not the general intent of my heart. Okay, so three words, yes, sometimes, or no. We got it? Here's where we're going. First word from Jesus, and we're going to start kind of hard. First word is, love your enemies. Love your enemies. This comes from the Sermon on the Mount, just a couple of chapters before what we're reading today. Jesus says in Matthew 5, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Uh, enemies sounds like an extreme term, and some of you are thinking right now, well, I don't really have any. I say to you today, yes, you do. <laughs> now, I grew up in a Baptist church, and I'm an ordained Baptist preacher, and uh, we had a lot of our own enemies right there in the church. We kind of kept them close by, you know, for convenience sake. We called them deacons many times. <laughs> Here's what an enemy is, okay? You may need to write this down. An enemy is anyone you find hard to love. Sometimes it might be the person sitting next to you right now. If it is, you don't need to tell them. This is not one of those moments of self-disclosure time. You know, we're not, we're not going there right now. But Jesus said, love your enemies. So the question is, do you do that? And isn't it true? This is so hard to trust Jesus with. Something inside us says when we hear this command, that's not natural. They don't deserve it. And if I love them, how do I know they're going to get what's coming to them? And I don't mean to make light of this because I know maybe your enemy is someone who has done something really bad. Maybe they've lied about you or they've cheated you or they've taken something away from you you can never get back. Maybe they've betrayed you. Maybe they even abused you. Maybe they've destroyed your reputation. Maybe they killed your dreams. Jesus still says, love your enemies. And Jesus knows something about enemies because Jesus loved the people who killed him. So the question is, is this the intent of your heart? Honestly, are you even trying? And here's what I'm confident is going on right now for many of you. Right now, God is bringing into many of your minds the face of the person that you need to love. Am I right? He's reminding you of this person you have a hard time loving. And the question is, are you seeking to do this day by day? Is it a guess? Or is it just sometimes? Or do you really need, to, to be honest, because after all, you're in church and you don't really need to add lying to your disobedience of this command. Do you need to just put down no? This is not the practice of my heart. So go ahead and write that down. Second word from Jesus is serve others in secret. Also comes from the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew 6, verse 3. Jesus says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And if you know this passage, you know that in this context, Jesus is talking to people who are tempted to do religious or spiritual things so that other people can see them. He's talking about what we can sometimes call image management. And Jesus says, sometimes do good things secretly. And again, let's just be honest, this is kind of hard for us because inside we find ourselves thinking, but if I do good things and I don't tell anybody, how will they ever find out that I did them? 
And if no one finds out that I did them, then what's the point of my doing them? Can we stop right now? Just a minute, time out. How many of you have ever had that thought? Would you please raise your hand, okay? I'm gonna, this is a test of how many honest people are in the room right now. There's a few. This is how we think, right? I mean, what's the point of doing something good if nobody's watching, if nobody gives you credit? Jesus says, just serve others. Do it in secret. Jesus says that we should just trust him with what happens after we obey him. And I think it's kind of interesting that uh, conversations at work kind of reveal this a lot of times where we, we, we feel prone to have to say, well, that was my idea. But sometimes we just need to do the right thing and not worry about who notices. Have you ever found yourself this constantly nuancing your words to help make people think, you know, you're smarter or stronger or more courageous or more spiritual or more loving than you actually are? Jesus says, don't do that. See, here's the question. Have you let go of the need to get credit? Are you regularly doing good things and just keeping them a secret between you and God? So write it down. Is that a yes for you? Is that maybe sometimes... Or honestly, is that a no? Third word is rest in Jesus. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, and it's a command, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Amen. Now, you read that, and you would think that would be a pretty easy one to obey, wouldn't you? But it's a funny thing. You ever seen a little child who you knew was exhausted? They're crabby, they're whiny. They're just so tired they can hardly keep their eyes open, but they don't want to go to bed. They're fighting it all the way. And of course, of course, only a child would be that stupid, right? You know, kindergarten teachers wrestle with this one every day. They have to work to get the kids to lie down for nap time. Kids fight it as hard as they can. You know, the only person in kindergarten that likes nap time is teacher. <laughs> teacher thanks God for nap time every day. For the kids who need the naps, don't. And Jesus says to foolish children, come to me. All you who are tired and stressed and worried and exhausted and discouraged and burdened down, come to me and I will give you rest. Talk to me. Pray for a while. Be still and listen to me for a while. Stop running around and I will give you rest. And we think, well, I can't do that. I mean, if I did that, something bad might happen. Everything might fall apart. Or maybe it would even be worse. Maybe everything wouldn't fall apart and I would find out I'm not as indispensable as I think I am. Or maybe I'd get bored. Or maybe I'd find out there's not much going on between Jesus and me. Are you running? 
and you just won't stop. You just can't stop. You just can't quit. You just can't sit. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And again, I tell you, this is a command, and I have to ask you, are you doing this? Are you really doing this? Is this a daily part of your life? Can you honestly say yes, that you're obeying this command? Or is it a sometimes? Or are you one of the people that never stops running, and so the truth is you need to put no down right here. And if you're one of the people that needs to put, no, I have to ask you, do you think that you alone are so important that Jesus' words don't apply to you? That worry and fatigue and burden and workaholism, they're, they're just inevitable for you. Write it down, yes, sometimes, or no. Here's the fourth word. And again, this is the teaching of the one that we call our Lord, our Savior. Jesus says, don't judge. Look at Matthew 7, 1. Again, from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. And so I have to ask you, is it your firm intention and is it your practice regularly not to condemn anyone in thought, word, or deed? I mean, really, do you refrain from gossip? Even when that gossip is couched subtly enough that you think you can get away with it. The kind of gossip that happens most often around a place like this here at church, we call prayer requests. <laughs> or maybe, do you ever get inappropriately impatient with people who are not living up to your high standards? If during this inventory you've been sneaking a few looks over at your neighbor's paper and you're feeling pretty good about yourself because you're doing better than he or she is, then you should just give yourself a no on this one. <laughs> so yes, sometimes no. Last word from Jesus today. And again, I want you to understand this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many more, but this is just a little experiment, a little sample Last word is pray persistently. We look at Luke 18, 1. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So the question is, do you persist in prayer even when the answers don't come as quickly as you think they should? Do you persist in prayer even when you find yourself disappointed Remember, Jesus knew all about disappointment in prayer. Jesus one day asked, Father, let this cup pass from me, and it didn't. Jesus said at the end of his ministry that he was praying for the complete unity of his believers, and he's been praying that prayer for 2,000 years, and it's not yet been fully fulfilled. But from the beginning of his life all the way to the end, Jesus never wavered in prayer. And Jesus taught his followers never to waver in prayer. He said, pray and don't give up. And so I have to ask you, is that true for you? Can you write that down? Is this the general practice of your life? Or do you need to put a sometimes? Sometimes you do good days. Sometimes you don't, bad days. Or is the truth actually no? Is the truth that you have given up 
on prayer for long stretches of time, and maybe you've never even thought about the fact that you are disobeying the clear command of Jesus to pray and not give up. Well, that's the great Jesus experiment that we're going to do today. I think you get the idea. I think you get the point. This is, maybe you can think of it like a starter kit, something that gets you going into even more commands. And I just want you to see the importance of obedience that we learned from this remarkable man. See, is it our posture day after day to actually do the things that Jesus says, to actually obey him with our lives? Or have we subtly deceived ourselves into thinking that because we agree with Jesus, then we're actually doing what he says. Jesus was told by the centurion, just say the word. And the centurion believed that that was enough. The question for us today is if Jesus just says the word to you, is that enough? He calls us to follow, and following means obedience. Would you bow your heads as we close our time in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are reminded as we think about these things of how many times we fail, how many times we fall short. And so, Lord, as you have brought to our attention our sins, our shortcomings, our failings, we ask, Lord, for your forgiveness because this is what you tell us to do. This is your command to us, Lord, when we have sinned against you that we would confess and repent And you promise, Lord, when we obey you in that way, that you will forgive us, that you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, even now, may that be happening all across this room as we, your children, bow before you in our hearts and we ask your forgiveness, Lord. Lord, we know that by the blood of Jesus, his death on the cross, our sins can be forgiven and are forgiven. And so we claim that today. Lord, set us free to obey you even more fully. Lord, we thank you for this remarkable man, for the testimony of his life. As we go into our our lives this next week, would you keep his example before us to encourage us, strengthen us to follow you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and all God's people together said, amen.